0: We left off a few weeks ago talking about the subject of critical race theory. And in critical race theory, when we consider that through biblical lenses, we looked at four problems with it. But there are more problems than just four. The problems with critical race theory are legion because they are many. So I'm not going to review the um, four that we have considered. I want to move on to consider additional ones. So fifth, CRT, critical race theory, rejects the idea of rights whereas the Bible protects rights. That's kind of a big statement that needs to be nuanced, and I'll nuance that as we um, go forward. As one book puts it, crits, which is a way of referring to CRT proponents, are suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. As the authors note, some older CRT scholars, quote, "...believe that moral and legal rights are apt to do the right holder much less good than we think, close quote. Now, if you wanted to see an example of what CRT's vision of, say, property rights is, consider the following. Appealing to a South African model that uses affirmative action, an affirmative action model, to directly distribute, quote, property and power, close quote, one writer argued for a, quote, "...conception of affirmative action where existing distributions of property will be modified by rectifying unjust loss and inequality. Property rights will then be respected, but they will not be absolute." Property rights within a CRT worldview are thus subject to the greater good of rectifying inequality. In other words, if people with a critical race theory worldview come into positions of power and they deem it inequitable that you have what you have because they think that other people should have what you have, then they will move to legislate that your property, and per that quote before, and power will be distributed to modify inequality. Now, in contrast to this, While commanding generosity over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament alike, God's Word protects property rights. Now before seeing that, however, let me just say, let us just remember that everything belongs to God. God owns it all. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all its inhabitants. You see the same idea using different language in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. God owns everything. People are essentially stewards. You think about the creation mandate. You go back to Genesis 1, verses 27 through 30, and you see that people were meant to be stewards of God's creation, exercising dominion and imaging God in the way that they steward His creation. You could look at a verse like Psalm 115, uh, verse 16, and how the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. So there's a responsibility of stewardship that men and women have in the here and now. And those opportunities are connected to, if you will, a lowercase o derivative ownership of things like property and possessions and lands and so on. And as previously noted, I want you to understand, from a biblical worldview, the Scripture recognizes and protects such rights. What kind of rights? Well, the right to ownership. The right to property and possessions and lands. For starters, consider the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. That implies that what belongs to someone else should not be taken by someone else. After all, how could you steal what doesn't belong to someone? It wouldn't be stealing if they did not have ownership of it. Where there is no ownership, there is no stealing. Now, what is implied in the Eighth Commandment You could look at Exodus 20, verse 15, is explicitly stated in the 10th commandment. And you could look in Exodus or Deuteronomy. Exodus 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy 5, 21. There, the 10th commandment reads as, You shall not covet. But then you go on a little bit further and it says, Anything that is your neighbor's. Thus, clearly, Showing the ownership of possessions and property that the neighbor has. They could walk through the uh, Old Covenant um, Pentateuch, and you would see, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, if you saw your neighbor's ox going astray, not a problem that we run into here in Staten Island <laughs> in 2021, but imagine yourself if you saw your neighbor's ox going astray, what were you supposed to do? You weren't supposed to just you know, hide your eyes from it, nor were you to play finder's keepers and say, look, there's an ox, it's mine. What you were supposed to do is you were supposed to go and get the ox for your neighbor. It was, I would argue, kind of outworking, an Old Testament outworking of Jesus' instruction to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it also implied ownership. The ox belonged to your neighbor. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 8, There's a brief section there on animal control laws. In Exodus 21, verses 28 through 36, but I'm just going to call your attention to verse 28. Verse 28 could be nuanced, and it is nuanced by what follows, but I want to call your attention to something specific. Verse 28 reads like this, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner owner shall be acquitted. Now that's nuanced and we've talked about that. If the owner was negligent in the way that he had handled the ox, if the ox was known to gore people and so on and he was negligent, he'd be liable and responsible as well. But here we find that the ox indeed had an owner. The ox it belonged to an individual, not to the community as a whole. It wasn't the community's ox, it was that person's ox. Now the examples could continue. You look in Genesis 23 for instance and you see Abraham acquired property and he would have that property essentially in perpetuity. You look in Jeremiah 32 you see that Jeremiah purchased land that would belong to him. Israelites were forbidden to steal land by moving boundary markers. One reference that could be given, Deuteronomy 19.14, but there are plenty of others as well. The laborer's wages belonged to the laborer, and thus it was wrong to withhold their wages from them, Leviticus 19.13. Why? Why was it wrong to withhold it from them? Because it belonged to them. They had worked and they had earned it, and it was theirs. They had lowercase o ownership, if you will. And the examples could go on. We can go into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, we see that Peter stated that the proceeds from the sale of the land that Ananias and his wife received were indeed theirs. And they could have done with it whatever they pleased. But remember, they lied and they acted as though they had given all the proceeds of the land when they had only given part. And Peter was essentially saying, it was yours to do whatever you wanted with, with it. And the point being, when you look at the ways in which people acquired property in everyday life in Israel, it was through things like this. Work, inheritance, trading... It wasn't through Mosaic distributions of the proceeds of other people's labor and inheritance in a never-ending attempt to produce equality of ownership. Does that make sense? If God had willed to set things up like that, in that theocracy under the Mosaic Covenant, He could have done that. But He didn't do that. And God's design is not to be overlooked or abused. While CRT, critical race theory, looks down upon a system that, quote, applauds affording everyone equality of opportunity, but resists programs that assure equality of results. Do you hear that? They're kind of mocking the idea that somebody would applaud a system that has equality of opportunity, but doesn't ensure equality of results. So it advocates for what you could call a kind of forced equality which is communism. And every attempt to implement communism has ended in ruin. Famine, much death, conservative estimates range around a hundred million people dead as a result of communism tried in multiple nations conservative estimates. But the Christian stands on much firmer ground than the predictably horrid results of communism as evidenced in history, namely the Word of God. So if you embrace CRT's view of property rights, then you reject the Scripture's view of property rights. Embrace what God's Word says with, something, with respect to something like property rights, and you reject CRT's worldview. But besides that, besides CRT's view that property rights are potentially subject to the goal of forcing um, equality by taking what belongs to some and giving it to others, it advocates, at least some CRT advocates, uh, look at rights in a way in which the Scripture does not, stating that, quote, in our system, rights are almost always procedural, for example, to a fair process, rather than substantive. For example, to food, housing, or education. So they're looking at the way in which we live in America and saying, okay, our rights, when we consider rights of what we enjoy as American citizens, they're usually procedural as opposed to substantive. And it gives some examples here. Examples like food, housing, and education. Well, what does the Scripture say with regards to what was just mentioned there? What about procedural rights? The Scripture clearly affirms procedural rights. Um, as Nicodemus asked, for instance, in John chapter 7, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And you go through the Mosaic Law and you can see that there was a procedure to be followed. There were witnesses to be garnered if somebody was going to be accused and prosecuted of a crime. There was procedure. Hence, as you see it over and over again in the Mosaic Law. So yes, we are for procedural rights because the Scripture had outlined that in the Mosaic Law. But what about other things? What about a right to, say, food? What about a right to food? Now, to be clear, in the Old Covenant, provision was made so that anyone could glean from the corners, from the edges of a harvest field. Henceforth, why I think that a benevolent society should have some means in place to protect people from starvation. But at the same time, it presumed the work of gleaning, like going and taking you know, the grapes from a vine, would be done by the individual. So it presumed some measure of work was going to be done by them. The opportunity was there, and within the society, if Israel was going to live right, they were going to make sure that they didn't harvest everything. You were going to leave part of your land for the poor in the land so that they could come so that they wouldn't starve. And that's why I would argue a benevolent society should have some sort of safety net like that. But it presumed that somebody would actually go out there and do the work and glean, not someone else for that person. As it relates to able-bodied men, Paul wrote, If a man does not work, he shall not eat. Now what about housing? As it relates to housing, everyone having their own dwelling is depicted in a future time. It's a beautiful picture, and this is only part of the picture. If you looked at Isaiah 65, verse 21 and 22. There are other pictures of just protection and like Micah chapter 4 of people sitting under their own vine and being protected and not having to be worried about being dispossessed or driven from their land and so on. But the housing dynamic, if you will, is in a future time in Isaiah 65 verses 21 and 22, but it is not a present right. Paul and his co-laborers had times of homelessness, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 11. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, knew what it was like to be without a place to lay his head. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. And now, please understand, this is important. God's people are called, Old Testament, New Testament alike, to be mobilized, to be open handed with generosity. You want to look at a a place where that's strongly stated in the Mosaic covenant and Mosaic law? Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. And to welcome the poor who are cast out, in some cases dispossessed from their home and lands, wickedly and unjustly, to welcome such a one into one's home is a God-honoring act of mercy. Isaiah 58, verse 7. Remember, even Jesus spoke about when you took me in as a stranger, when you took in the stranger, it's as though you did it to him. When you did it to the least of his brethren, you did it as unto him. But to describe housing as a right, however, to say that it can be legally demanded of others to provide it for you, because that's what you do, right? If you start thinking through this, if you say that it's a right, well, the corollary to that is that it's an obligation for someone else. It's an obligation for society. It's an obligation for individuals. And now, all of a sudden, when you start saying all these things are rights, then all of a sudden you're putting burdens upon people's shoulders that the Scripture does not. So you're going beyond the pale of Scripture. What about a right to education? What about a right to education? Well, first we need to know how the Scripture frames the responsibility for education. The Scripture frames the responsibility for education in such a way that it falls first and foremost on parents. Old Testament, New Testament alike. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 19. Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. Now the primary object of education was to be God's revelation and moral education. And I think that is instructive for parents, for all of us. Any one of us in this room who are parents or grandparents, you understand the priority of education. The priority of education is God's revelation and moral education. Getting that clearly from the Scriptures. They are to know the Word of God. They are to be trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they are to have an an understanding of what it's like to live in God's world rightly, with the right moral education. Heavenly wisdom for sound earthly living. You see that over and over again in the Proverbs. So it falls first and foremost on the parents. In the Old Covenant, the Levites bore the responsibility of also teaching the covenant community. So the primary teaching for children would happen in the family, in the home. And then you would have the Levites within the community teaching different places where they were scattered. The Levites, they had the responsibility of teaching the people the law. They so often did not do that well, and that's why the law fell into disuse and misuse throughout times in Israel's history, but nonetheless, that was their responsibility. In the New Testament, the responsibility falls on parents. Train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then secondarily, it falls on pastors and elders in the local church. To teach. Thus to call education a right, with every with reference to every person in society being owed education from someone outside of their parents and the church goes beyond the pale of scriptural teaching. And public schools, for instance, were not mandated in old covenant Israel. So why am I saying this? Because if you call something a right, you want to have a biblical basis for it, especially if you're a Christian. And you can see, children have a right, if you will, if you will, to have their parents teaching them. God's revelation, moral education. Those who come to a local church have a right, because we have an obligation as elders, to teach the Word of God. But when you start going beyond that, you go beyond the pale of Scripture. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of other ways in which CRT, a CRT worldview, is contradictory to the Scripture's worldview. I'm not going to cover these in detail. I'm just going to mention some other ones briefly. CRT promotes an oppressor versus oppressed worldview without using the Bible's description of oppression, using untruthful designations, and creating unnecessary adversarial relationships between people, which leads to stirring up strife, which per Proverbs 6 is something that God hates. He hates that. It is opposed to the existence of hierarchy when God is not. God has established hierarchy in the home. God has established hierarchy in the church. And He affirms the existence of governing authorities, etc. CRT creates unnecessary conflict for children of interracial marriages and interracial adoptions. It affirms, CRT does, standpoint epistemology. We spoke a little bit about this a few weeks ago. Thinking that those who are the minorities in the population can see things, either in life or in the Scriptures, that others cannot, because their thinking is obscured, to use language found in so much of CRT's writings, obscured by whiteness, which leads to ethnic partiality, which God forbids, as we saw in previous studies. Thus, Christians must reject a CRT worldview and uphold the beauty of a biblical one. So, those are some of the ways in which a CRT worldview runs um, roughshod against the Word of God. I briefly want to touch on the subject of Marxism. We have about 10 minutes left, and I want to call your attention to this subject briefly. In case you haven't noticed, Marxism is on the rise in America. In fact, it can be argued that at the time that we are living in right now, we are in the midst, arguably, of a Marxist revolution. You would think that after Marxism's numerous failures, that it would cause its adherents to wear its label in shame, but that's not the case. Many wear it profoundly or proudly. Um, BLM's founders, for instance, are outspokenly Marxist. During during an interview, one of the founders of BLM stated the following. Myself and Alicia in particular, we're trained organizers, we are trained Marxists, we are super versed on ideological theories. Marxists can go by other names, they can go by names such as progressives or democratic socialists, etc., and although today's marxists their warfare is not limited to the class warfare that Marx espoused and said was going on throughout human history. Right? Mar- Marx saw all of human history as a class war between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the essentially the haves and the have-nots, essentially those who own the means of production and those who were the working class. He saw all of history through those lenses. Present-day Marxists have moved beyond that while still using that tactic. They have found it is more useful to not only set classes up against one another because where capitalism has been, the poor have risen from poverty into greater opportunity, greater upward economic mobility, and so on. So they found that to not be as useful. They have found ethnic warfare to be much more useful. That's why they have a kind of, as it's been referred to, cultural Marxism. Rather than dividing people through classes, but they still do that, They have found it to be more useful to divide people into other groups, ethnic groups being one of them. Though that's not what they're just limited to. Nonetheless, it is good for a Christian to be grounded in at least some of what Marxism espouses and how it opposes capitalism, how it aims to implement communism, and even more so what God's Word says in opposition to it. By the way, I recognize that in this time right now, I'm not going to give an overview of the Person that Karl Marx was. I'm going to look at the philosophy. But to use language from one apologist, one Christian apologist described Marx as, quote, "...crude, dirty, repulsive, ill-tempered, exploitive, ambitious, deceitful, bitter, self-centered, irresponsible with money, failure of a man who can nevertheless write with apparent erudition." When you look at many of the biographies that are written with respect to Karl Marx and you see whether it's unfaithfulness in marriage, whether you see it was irresponsibility with providing for children or not working and so on or living off of the inheritance of his co-laborer Friedrich Engels and so on you can see that by way of character, he's not a man to be emulated. That's not a mean thing to say. That's just a sober evaluation of his, of his life, at least as testified to by contemporaries and by biographers. But we're going to just consider some of the elements of Marxist philosophy. First, the Bible does not affirm a Marxist axiomatic statement like, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. You see what that's saying, Right? So Marx, and some would would say, well, that was Marx's view of what it would be like in his utopia. So after you get through the revolution, which he was okay with, if all other means did not work, he was okay with a bloody revolution. And at the end of the bloody revolution then you would get to his version of a utopia, which would never be a utopia in a fallen world. It's a dystopia, and all of the evidence in history points to that. But then he imagined at, say, that time, though this principle would work itself out earlier, that people would just work for the joy of working and from each according to his ability to each according to his need. In other words, you do what you can and the proceeds of your labor go to whoever needs it. You just enjoy doing what you do because... It's an altruistic thing for you to work your hardest for everyone else who needs it. Is that the Scripture's view? Is that how the Scripture teaches us to live in the here and now? Have you been doing the wrong thing for years working and providing for your family when in reality what you should have been doing is distributing whatever the proceeds were from your labor to everyone who has need? Should you have made it your life ambition to find out however many people have need in your community, in your borough, in your state and then you figure out a way to apportion two cents to this one and two cents to that one from your ability to everyone's need? Is that what you're supposed to do? Is that what the scripture teaches? No, it's not. The Scripture does not teach that. Again, just to make it clear, the Scripture teaches if an able-bodied man does not work, he shall not eat. You see that in 2 Thessalonians 3. So, for example, if someone had great ability to earn income for food, it wasn't that man's ability that was to be used to fill, say, for instance, a lazy man's tummy. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. Individuals individuals have the responsibility of providing for their families. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8. If a man doesn't provide for his own household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. See, the responsibility falls on families, not the society, not the state. Of course, the church comes in Right? To help, for instance, qualifying widows, as we saw in 1 Timothy, where the family cannot, and so on, and the church comes alongside. But the responsibility, first and foremost, falls on families. Not the state, not society. The Old Testament says that a good man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. Proverbs 13.22 Now note that. So a family member's inheritance belongs to The family. Right? It doesn't belong to the state or society. Now that's seen in different places in the Old Testament as well. A great place to see this is in Numbers 27. Concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. When you look in Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophehad had a question about inheritance. And what would happen in that chapter, you could look at verses 1 through 11, it became the occasion for a statute in the Mosaic law concerning inheritance laws and the order of inheritance. If you look in that chapter, particularly verses 8 through 11 of Numbers 27, you would see that the inheritance would go to the sons, to daughters, to a brother, to a paternal uncle, and to a closest relative. That's the order that's outlined there. It stood within the family. Marx, however, no surprise, wanted the abolishment of all right of inheritance. Which stands in contrast to God's Word. And that's the issue. I'm not arguing for an economic philosophy per se. I'm arguing for what the Word of God says in contrast to the philosophy of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Second, Marx believed that property should be shared at least the major means of production. Note, the Scripture, however, nowhere calls for communal or governmental control of the means of production and it nowhere forbids ownership of that which is not sinful. Abraham is a great example of this. Abraham, for example, was, quote, very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, Genesis 13, verse 2. He had herdsmen that worked for him and managed his livestock, verse 8, and God did not call Abraham to forfeit the means of production to the common ownership of society. He was allowed to own the means of production and to provide the herdsmen with opportunities for work. In the Mosaic law, hired servants were to be paid their wages at the end of the day, as we just saw not too long ago, Leviticus 19:13. So you had, if you will, employer-employee type of relationships, even within the old covenant. Boaz, who was in so many ways the example of uh, the model of a godly business owner, he owned land, and he had levels of employee management. You could look at Ruth chapter two verses one through eight. Third, contrary to Marxism, the Bible does not call for the pursuit of a classless society or a classless church. Those who are rich in the New Testament were, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 18, commanded to be generous, rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. But the amount of their giving was not regulated and mandated. Elders within a local church did not have the responsibility to, say, raise the poor from a lower economic class to a higher one and lower the rich from a higher economic standing to a lower one. Christian servants were not supposed to unite and overthrow their masters. The poor were not to envy the rich. Rich and poor and everyone in between, they were to come together and they were to worship the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of their socioeconomic standing. As far as, um, as far as the unity that a local church is to exhibit is to be regardless of socioeconomic standing. Fourth, in a capitalistic society, factors like supply and demand, scarcity and plenty, the uniqueness of a person's skills and experience and abilities, all of that contributes to the prices of goods and the wages of workers. However, in a communist society, although the utopian aim is to be without government, that was like the goal of Marx, that eventually they would get to a place and people would get to a place where there would be no need for government, which, by the way, goes against God's word, because in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, God has said that government should be used to restrain evil. Government is really meant to protect people's rights and liberties and to punish and restrain evil. So Marx was wrong there as well. But in a communist society, it's the government that sets the parameters, punishing success by sovereignly redistributing the rewards of someone's labor to whoever they, the government, the people in power esteem, should get it. See, in communism, there is a ruling class. And Marx recognized this. He referred to it as the dictatorship of the proletariat. That as you work your way through this utopia, what's going to happen organically from the, inside, from the inside out as opposed to the outside in, you are going to have the working class rise up. And they were going to rise up to positions of power and then you were for a time to have the dictatorship of the proletariat. But then you have a ruling class and now they're part of the ruling class. But the difference in the communistic society is that as opposed to in a society where the government has the responsibility to protect people's rights and freedoms in the communistic society those in positions of power not only control the economy, they bear the sword as well. So they can make sure that things get redistributed the way they want because they have the power to enforce their redistribution. So there still is a ruling class. In a capitalistic government, you have people freely pursuing economic growth while the government bears responsibility of equally protecting the rights of all citizens and punishing evil in a society. In a communist form of government, the government demotivates economic growth by taking away normal, healthy motivations for work like earning for the purposes of saving for one's family or posterity or giving to whomever you choose as opposed to whoever the ruling class chooses And while the government bears the means of production, they also control the means to impose their classless society as they see fit. Historical examples found in the Soviet Union, Communist China, Venezuela, Cambodia, Vietnam, Cuba. And examples could go on. And the 100 million plus who have died as a result of Marxist communism being implemented, however nuanced it might have been, bears witness to the danger such an ideology can bring. Where this ideology goes, suffering and evil follow. It's not surprising, it's against God's word, but history also bears witness as well. Briefly, fifth, Marxism fosters jealousy and envy. It encourages vengeance and resentment. essentially teaching people that whatever the ruling class has, they got it by exploiting you. Envy rots the bones. Proverbs 14.30 Scripture says, clearly, do not covet. Exodus 20.17 Writer of Hebrews says, be content with what you have. Hebrews 13.5 The Lord hates the one who sows discord among brethren. Proverbs 6.19 the Proverbs teach that it's a perverse person that sows strife, Proverbs 16:28. James wrote that the wisdom that comes down from above is peaceable, peaceable. However, he contrasts that with bitter jealousy and envy, which he described as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. Titus described those who stir up division within a church and those who continue to do so after being warned as being corrupt, sinning, and self-condemned. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Suffice it to say, when you embrace a philosophy that stokes the flames of envy and jealousy and vengeance and resentment, it is wicked in the sight of God. And make no mistake, Marxism is wicked in the sight of God. Sixth and finally, Mark and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto, quote, Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality instead of constituting them on a new basis. It therefore acts in contradiction to all past experience. End quote. Suffice it to say, it's easy to see how such a statement shouldn't be applauded or accepted by a Christian. Biblical Christianity holds dear the eternal truths that are found in God's Word. It upholds the practice of what Scripture in James 1, for instance, would identify as true religion and the teaching of biblical morality. And at the center of everything, at the apex of history, is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. It wouldn't surprise me, it shouldn't surprise you, that Marx sought to abolish that. Because you can't have a higher authority than the state in a Marxist communist society. But Christians cannot let go of that higher authority. We are bound to that higher authority of the living God. We are bound to the authority of the One who was raised from the dead for sinners like us and is seated at the right hand of the Father, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we live our lives here, brethren, when you hear these different things, these different doctrines of men come your way, At least now you have a little bit more of a grounding biblically to say why you don't hold to, for instance, a CRT worldview. Why you believe that Marxism is wicked. It isn't just because it's crazy. It isn't just because, do you see what it did in society? It's because it stands in contrast to God's Word at so many points. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the the honor of getting to see the world in which we live through the lenses of Scripture. Thank you, Lord. I know that my natural eyes are uh, incapable of seeing things rightly without the literal glasses and lenses that are on my face. But how much more heavenly, Father, are we incapable of seeing the world rightly apart from the lenses of Scripture? and Your Holy Spirit illuminating our eyes. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for Your Word. It indeed is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray, Heavenly Father, that um, You would continue to protect this local church, that we, Heavenly Father, would be protected from being swayed by the different winds and waves of doctrine that are coming um, against so many in our world in these days. We pray, Heavenly Father, That the knowledge of Your Word would not lead us to be puffed up. But Father, by Your grace, that love would edify. That we might be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. That we might be ready to say why we believe that certain things are wrong. And that we might be ready to point people to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that You might find us faithful, living in this world honoring You and glorifying not only with our words, not only with our deeds, but with our thinking and with our minds. So Father, may You use this series and these considerations to that end that we might love You even more with our minds. And that our minds might be renewed, that we might not be conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that Your Word may be like logs placed on the furnace of our heart, whereby we might just be further inflamed to love You, to love one another, and to love those who are lost and outside of Jesus Christ. May it be for Your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.